So this evening we come to another parable, the parable of the city. But before going into that in any detail, let's just step back and look at the parables we've explored so far. We started with a a person on the bank of a river having to put together a raft in order to get over to the other shore to make use of her resourcefulness, her imagination, drawing upon a courage, willingness to overcome fear and to do whatever is needed to get to the other bank and then be able to continue on their journey. We can also imagine a journey that would be fraught with danger, particularly in India at this period, where it's only in the safety of of either village communities, closely knit groups of families in clusters of housing, probably with some kind of protective wall around the village community. Once you go outside into the, the open land, um, on the road, on paths, across fields, you're no longer guaranteed the protection of the law. Um, you're on your own, or as a result, you would probably you know, travel in the company of others, in caravans, in groups, to be safe. But even so, you could be attacked. And the idea of being struck by an arrow, which might strike us as a fairly unlikely thing to be happening, although, of course, if we live in the United States, uh, it might be more likely with all of these guns around, but nonetheless, um, it's an, being struck by an arrow is also a, an experience that people in those days would have, <clears throat> would have feared, could quite likely have happened to them. So they're not talking of something that's just hypothetical. It's a real life-death situation that they encounter as they go through their lives. So the next parable had to do with, with that threat to one's life and how one could most skillfully um, treat that threat, particularly once wounded. The whole idea of, of extracting the arrow, of giving priority to the taking of care of oneself, leaving aside any other abstract considerations, not worrying so much about who it was who shot the arrow, for example. The first concern is to somehow remove the arrow. We also, I think, have to ask ourselves, well, where would these people be going who find themselves on riverbanks, crossing rivers, continuing on their journey, subjecting themselves to dangers and threats, 
finding themselves in an unknown, maybe inhospitable terrain. Probably many of them were heading for the newly emerging cities that were springing up on the Gangetic Plain at the Buddha's time. We often think of Varanasi or Benares as one of the great ancient cities of India and if you listen to the rhetoric of the Brahmin priests, this is a city that's been there since for thousands of years, the oldest inhabited city in India, they say. But archaeological excavations around the city of Benares recently have shown that the earliest foundations uh, of the ramparts, which indicate the presence of a city, um, only were uh, started around the Buddha's time. So again, it somehow reinforces this idea that the, 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 the phenomenon of the city and the necessary political and social conditions that are needed for cities to emerge was happening at this time. It's a very good example of the new kind of society that was emerging. It's also worth bearing in mind here that we shouldn't think that this part of India was already a Brahmanized or a kind of a Hindu culture. Again, recent scholarship has shown that the eastern part of the Gangetic Plain was not, uh, at, that, at the Buddha's time, Brahmanized. There was no caste system in place. Um, there were no Brahmin priests reciting rituals and prayers and making sacrifices the whole time. This was a society that had not yet been um, uh, exposed to the forms of society that we think of as typically Indian. And a lot of the Buddha's um, teachings uh, are often presented as though they're a critique of Hinduism, of the caste system or of beliefs in, in an eternal soul or, or God. But actually that's reading later developments back retroactively to the Buddha's time. It seems that that was not at all the case, in fact. That this was a society in transition uh, that was probably largely animist or shamanist in its uh, spiritual orientation. There's a suggestion that the Buddha's community were probably sun worshippers. Uh, they were much more uh, focused on the, the powers of nature that supplied and guaranteed life. And they became the objects of, of worship. So what's going on here um, is actually the first movement towards the creation of an, a proto-urban or an urban society. And the Buddha's teachings were very much directed at the people who were um, coming of age at this period, were leaving their homelands, their farms, their village communities, uh, were setting out on these journeys, and there was then settling in or around these first cities that were appearing uh, in the Gangetic Basin, 
It's worth also noting that the Buddha's communities, the principal communities the Buddha established, which is the, the Jetta's Grove in, in Savati, the uh, Bamboo Grove in Rajgir, and the, um, the, the, the Mahavan, the Great Forest Grove at Vaishali, were all right next door to the largest cities of the day. Uh, the Buddhist community, uh, from the very beginning, based itself about a kilometer or less outside one of these new urban developments. So there's very clear evidence, uh, not only from the texts, but also now from archaeological finds, that the Buddha was focusing primarily on this newly emergent civilization that was coming about at his time. And this, I think, puts into context um, the parable of the city, which I'm now going to read and then offer some reflections upon. Suppose, monks, the Buddha says, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path. He would follow it and see an ancient city that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks and groves and ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and saw an ancient city. Renovate that city, Sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city and sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. Now, some of you might have noticed that this passage actually presents a problem in light of what I've just said before. Namely, that this was a time in India of that period where the first cities were emerging. We now know that Varanasi, Benares, was emerging at this time. Shravasti, Rajgir, Vishali. If that's the case, then how could somebody wander into a forest and find the ruins of an ancient city? There were no cities before this time. So what's going on? Some scholars would basically say that that shows that this story must come from a later period. It can't be original. I would argue that since it's a parable, um, it's likely to be very early. So I will give it the benefit of the doubt that this might have been something the Buddha, or if not the Buddha himself, people in his inner circle, his friends, his family, whatever, the monks, might have uh, used as a, as, as a compelling example. What it points to, I think, is that although there were no cities in that part of eastern India, there had been cities elsewhere on the Indian subcontinent. The famous ones are, of course, the Indus Valley civilizations that predated uh, the Buddha by one or two thousand years. There was a whole urban um, civilization in what is now Pakistan 
um, with very complex uh, buildings, drainage systems, all manner of, uh, of uh, you know, complex urban life. There are also ruins of old cities near Delhi, Indraprastha, it's called. So this, to me, points to the fact that if this parable does go back to the Buddha's time, and let's assume it does, then he's referencing probably these ancient ruins that they would have been aware of. He, the Buddha, and his followers may not have seen them with their own eyes, but they would have been the sorts of things that would be carried by the collective memory of their society, their culture, people who had travelled elsewhere. Word of mouth would have carried this information. And I have a sense, actually, that this is what was going on, that uh, as these communities came to self-awareness, as they realized that they could lead lives that were not just tied to the land, when they saw the beginnings of new cities, that could well have been inspired by the collective memory of civilizations in the past uh, that had fallen into ruin. That would work rather well for this story. The idea being, therefore, that we need to restore this kind of civilized urban life once more. This is not terribly different, in fact, to how people of the Renaissance in Europe regarded the ruins of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Uh, they saw that the societies that they had in Europe in the, say, 14th, 15th centuries were really kind of relatively shoddy if affairs compared to the, the vast ruins of ancient Rome, for example, or the Parthenon. And the people of the Renaissance really saw themselves as, um, in a sense, uh, in awe of these past civilizations that, in addition to their understanding of them through the newly recovered Greek and Roman writings, uh, gave an enormous impetus to the development of uh, another kind of civilization in Europe itself. And in a sense, we are the beneficiaries of that, of that process. So that could well have been, I think, the reason why uh, the city uh, was chosen as such a powerful uh, image uh, for the new world that may have been coming into being. And as such, it required a new way of thinking, a new way of uh, comporting oneself, a new way of uh, considering what really matters in life. Um, an emphasis, I would imagine, on finding fulfillment through work, finding fulfillment through philosophy, finding fulfillment through um, the organization of society, of government, and so forth. And this, I think, makes a lot of sense when we then read the early Buddhist texts and we see the Buddha interacting with uh, the rulers, uh, the bankers, the merchants, the literati, the um, military as well, uh, people who were in the process of giving rise to this new kind of, of world that was emerging. So 
In this regard, the Buddha's teaching is not, therefore, just a spiritual philosophy that leads to a kind of personal welfare or salvation um, and can be understood purely in terms of the individual's needs. Uh, quite explicitly, the Dharma is concerned with the establishment of some kind of society governed by the rule of law. And remember the word Dharma means law. That's one of its core original meanings. And I don't think it's a, I think it's an important point. So the vision that seems to inform the Buddha is that his teaching is one that could bring about the renaissance, the rebirth of these ruined cities of the past and allow a civilization to flourish again. This is a metaphor that has no, uh, gives us no sense whatsoever that uh, the Buddha was interested in creating a monastic religion uh, with big monasteries and uh, powerful spiritual gurus and figures who, uh, as it were, embody this religious culture. This is a profoundly secular image, uh, the creation of a city. And this path is one that leads to such a restored city. But what is this path? The parable continues to explain. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road, travelled by Buddhas of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road, it is just this noble eightfold path that is complete vision, imagination, speech, action, work, application, mindfulness, and integration. That's the terminology I'm using at the moment. It's not quite the same as what uh, you'll read in most books on Buddhism. But the point is that the uh, this ancient path in the forest that he stumbled across, he identifies as the Eightfold Path. And the cultivation of the Eightfold Path is, of course, the fourth of the four tasks uh, to bring into being, to develop, to cultivate a way of life that acknowledges and seeks to uh, uh, realize the potentials of our humanity in the round, in totality. Again, it's not reducing the Dharma to becoming proficient in meditation, but rather it sees this practice as in integrating the way that we, we see things, ourselves, the world, the way we understand things, what our values are, a sense of right and wrong, it includes also the way we imaginatively engage with the tasks that life confronts us with. This involves our intentions, our motives, but also our ability to problem solve, to imagine solutions. We saw this already implicit in the 
parable of the raft. It also includes how we communicate, how we speak, how we make sense to one another, how we um, employ language and symbols and images and art. It has to do with how we embody our practice through our physical bodies. It has to do with how we come to terms with uh, sexuality, how we come to terms with violence, how we come to terms with, with property. And again, I think it's useful to think in these broader terms than simply saying that you know, right action is not killing, not stealing, not abusing people. Uh, that makes it rather narrowly moralistic. Whereas I feel that what is really being pointed to are, are these broad areas of human life that need to be addressed, understood, and somehow integrated into our own ethical vision. So this has to do with our relations to our bodies, uh, our sexual identity, our uh, relationship to what we own, what other people own, and it has to do also with our relationship to violence. Not just don't kill people, but really think about the extent to which our lives are in involved with, with actual or potential violence committed by us or committed by others upon us. This path has to do with our work, uh, how we uh, find fulfillment through what we do, through how we not only earn a livelihood, which is part of it, but perhaps more importantly, how it's through our work that we engage not only with other people, but we also engage with the building of a society, uh, of the establishing of, um, of businesses, um, of guilds would have been the case at the Buddhist time, um, of coming together in a city where there's a much greater potential for uh, the division of labor. Different people are able to develop specific skills, whereas in a rural environment, everybody basically just has to be a good farmer. Some of them will maybe make ox carts, but basically it's very limited uh, the extent to which labor can be divided. In a city, each individual is able to flourish according to their particular skill set, their particular gifts. And a civic society, um, a civilization, is one that uh, comes about through increasingly refined differentiation of labor. So all of this to me is implicit in the Eightfold Path. Of course, it has to do with applying oneself, uh, you know, f focusing one's energies, making effort. And it has to do, obviously, with cultivating qualities of attention and awareness, <coughs> mindfulness, concentration, so that our inner energies are not scattered, that our minds remain still and clear, capable of uh, attending to what is not only arising within our own minds, but also the ways in which others are appearing to us, are calling out for help, are in need. All of this has to do with this process of, of integration. So it's quite clear, therefore, what the ancient path is a symbol for. And since the 
ancient path, the Eightfold Path, culminates in a city, this suggests, I think, quite unambiguously how the broader sense of practice refers to working together with others to give rise to another kind of culture. And that, I feel, is in some ways a parable that speaks quite directly to, um, to our condition too. One of the topics that comes up endlessly on retreats like this or on courses that we run at Bodhi College or lectures I give here, there and everywhere um, is, you know, this is all very well, this practice of mindfulness, but how does it apply to social issues? How does it apply to uh, politics? How does it apply to economics? And I wonder, in fact, whether um, the uh, Buddhists have somehow lost sight of those things. And instead, the Dharma gave rise very much to uh, very you know, uh, complex and uh, powerful religious institutions, monasteries, those monasteries were always outside the city walls. Uh, they were not inside the city. And that's one of the reasons why Buddhism didn't survive in India, because um, once you destroy the monasteries, which are, frankly, easy to destroy if you're a, if you're a, a Muslim army from Turkey, um, unarmed, non-violent monks and nuns are a kind of soft target. And as a result, there were many other factors as well, which we won't go into, but uh, Buddhism was quite vulnerable because it had evolved as a predominantly monastic religion outside the uh, framework of, civ of civic life. And um, that seems to be arguably... Um, the result of having lost sight of the parable of the city. Uh, Buddhism did not evolve according to the vision that is implicit in this uh, story. And as a result, it became very, in a sense, very, very, very sophisticated and successful in uh, developing forms of meditation, forms of philosophy and so forth but arguably it never quite rose to the challenge of um, establishing a, uh, a civic society which ran according to the principles and the values of the Dharma. So that, I feel, is what the Buddha sought. Unfortunately, when we read the actual text itself, when it comes to explain what the city stands for, it's a little bit unclear. It, to me, looks slightly corrupt, this text, because I'll read it if you like. Um, I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known dukkha, the arising, the ceasing, and the way. In other words, the Four Noble Truths. As well as the conditioned arising of dukkha, I have directly known them. I've explained all these things to the monks, the nuns, the lay followers, the men and the women lay followers, the good life monks, 
has become successful and prosperous, is extended, popular, widespread, well-proclaimed amongst gods and men. Now, what this is saying, basically, is that um, uh, the city stands for the establishment of the Buddhist religion based upon the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths and the understanding of how we get out of the cycle of aging, death, suffering, and so on. Once again, like in the parable of the arrow, it looks as though the Four Noble Truths have been inserted here um, to affirm that what the Buddha's teaching was about was effectively that of establishing institutions that enabled uh, monks, nuns primarily, but also people from other walks of life uh, to uh, escape from the cycle of birth and death. There's very little sense here that this uh, uh, has to do with the creation of a society. So we kind of lose something about the parable when it gets interpreted in what I feel to be the later light of Buddhism as a successful religion more than as a framework for a kind of society. So, sorry. So, that's the parable. That's the story. And I find it very inspiring for the kind of uh, dharma that we're seeking to um, develop and uh, practice in our day and age, that it gives a great deal of uh, weight and legitimacy to the idea of the dharma uh, engaging with all aspects of human life, um, rather than just being a very good system of uh, meditation. So in some ways, it questions the whole idea of engaged Buddhism. This is a very popular term, and I think it has, um, uh, you know, it's something that has been a very positive development uh, in the last uh, decades. But it's, again, problematic because it suggests really that engagement is a kind of option. You've got Buddhism, and if you want, you can have engaged Buddhism or socially active Buddhism, which implies that you could just as well have disengaged Buddhism or totally self-centered Buddhism. Um, I'm uncomfortable with that, particularly when we go back to these early parables and we find that from the very outset, the Buddha did not differentiate between inner work and outer work, inner practice and social engagement. He saw this as one integrated whole. And I think the same is true when we start to think of the Dharma not as a practice that leads us to the nature of reality or truth, but rather as a practice that is founded on the performance of certain tasks, that once again the need to then flag an engaged Buddhism is also somehow less necessary. If the foundation on which one's practice is based is the uh, recognition, performance and mastery of a set of tasks, one of which is 
cultivating a way of life, then we're already at a point of engagement. Uh, embracing dukkha in its widest sense, embracing the suffering not just of oneself, but of the whole society, of the world, of all sentient beings. This too, the very first task, is an act of profound engagement with the suffering of the world. So on that basis, to then say, but, but I want to practice engaged Buddhism, doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's already engaged from the outset, from the very beginning. Now, the point I want to make next is to acknowledge uh, something that I'd found a bit difficult to acknowledge until recently, namely the fact that in the suttas, in the discourses, uh, the image of the city, uh, as in this uh, parable, um, is used as a metaphor for nirvana. The the nirvana is often compared to a city. I couldn't quite get what that meant because nirvana and city are, for me, ideas that are really rather different. Maybe they are for you too, maybe not. But I think, you know, this is the, you know, when one looks deeply into these early texts, you have to somehow stay true to what you're seeking to find out, namely what were these earliest images and what did they mean at the Buddha's time. I think it's quite clear that the Buddha understood nirvana as being like a city. What does that mean? The key to this, I think, is that we have to consider what cities were actually like in that period. When I say city today, you might have an image coming up in your mind of Los Angeles, or Tokyo, or London, or Paris. And the modern city is a vast urban sprawl with no clearly defined edge or border. Um, And it's difficult to see how Nirvana could be like Los Angeles, for example. But what were the cities then like at the Buddha's time? The crucial, if not the defining feature of a city was that it was enclosed by a wall. Ramparts would be the term used in the Pali text. It was an enclosed and protected space. And that was true here in Europe until relatively recently, until the 17th, 16th, 17th century. Um, Cities like Bordeaux, near where I live, were walled, uh, enclosed, protected spaces. That was true everywhere. And it's only when the rule of law extended through the Um, power of the nation, of the state, that these walls became redundant. And so, as a rule, they got torn down and the city city then just sort of spread out endlessly. Um, Again, for us, an old walled medieval city is something rather quaint and pretty and we go to Italy and 
France to go to these old medieval towns. But the point is that um, the walled city is the symbol of nirvana. Nirvana is like a walled city. It, it actually is misleading today to just say city. It means always and necessarily a walled city. Nirvana, and let's just remind ourselves what that means, is the, the stopping momentarily or for longer periods of reactivity, of greed, of hatred, of confusion. Uh, the, the coming to a stop, a stillness. And that is, as it were, a safe space. That nirvana is experienced as uh, a lawful zone within one's own heart. In other words, a space, a safe space, that is governed by the law of dharma. However, you know, the, the various values, teachings, practices, um, they are what govern the inner city of nirvana. Nirvana, therefore, is a kind of solitude. It's a space in which we are um, somehow um, uh, protected against the power of our attachments, our fears, our anger, our grudges, our pride. These things no longer overwhelm. Um, they have been, as it were, excluded. They are kept at bay by being outside the city walls. So we create within ourselves a nirvanic space that is like a city in microcosm or in miniature. Now I find this quite, quite helpful. Um, the practice of the Dharma, therefore, operates at a macrocosmic and a microcosmic level. It's about, on the one hand, the creation of an inner city or an inner citadel, and on the other hand, it's the creation of a culture, let's say, or a society that is likewise uh, a safe space governed by the law of the Dharma, but in this sense, not in a private, personal way, but in a public, social sense. So there seem to be two ways that the city image functions, both as an image of our own interiority and an image of the kind of society or culture that we would seek to build on the basis of our own non-reactive space whence we respond through the Eightfold Path to the exigencies, the challenges of life. Again, this, is, this imagery is not um, exclusive to Buddhism. Um, we find uh, amongst the Stoics, uh, also, this idea that the practice of the philosophy of Stoicism is about uh, building within oneself an inner citadel. There's um, a very good book by Pierre 
Hadot, uh, the French philosopher, who's written a lot on uh, Hellenistic thought. And one of his most uh, uh, impressive books is called The Inner Citadel. And it is a study of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Um, yeah, they're usually called the meditations uh, of Marcus Aurelius, who is the Roman emperor um, who wrote these thoughts to himself when he retired every night from the battlefields near the Danube where he was leading the Roman armies uh, uh, against the invading Germans and other such awful people. Uh, <laughs> that was a joke for the people on the podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, so again, so, so, and you also find this imagery in Christianity. Uh, Christianity did draw a lot from Stoicism. Maybe it picked the idea up there, but I don't think so. The idea of the kingdom of heaven. And remember, the kingdom of heaven is within. And a kingdom, again, is in those days would have been visualized as a, as a city. Uh, kingdoms are run from cities. Uh, you think of St. Augustine, the city of God. It's the same idea. So the, the, the notion of city here functions at both levels, which I think is its, its power, really, to both enable us to envisage another kind of society but at the same time to use that image of that city as a way of thinking of one's own inner life, that we're also building a city within ourselves. And here too we start to hear um, how mindfulness might play a role. One of the... Uh, one of the um, the par- one of the uh, metaphors um, that we find uh, the Buddha using about mindfulness, he says mindfulness is like the gatekeeper at the gates of a city. So mindfulness is compared to the person who stands at the doors of the city. There are usually four at the different cardinal points. And the role of mindfulness is to notice who's trying to come inside the city and to permit those that we would like and are welcome in the city to come in and to prevent those who are unwelcome into the city from coming in. So this is understood um, psychologically to mean that mindfulness operates as the guardian of the gateway of the senses. This is how it's often phrased. And the gateways of the senses are like the gateways of our own inner city, the city of nirvana, not the city of God. And mindfulness, therefore, um, uh, pays close attention to what arises in the mind. Um, It's not just about being aware of the breath or the sensations in the body, but it's once it gets more refined, it turns its attention to the feeling tone that Martine has been speaking about. But also it pays attention to the actual uh, rising up 
of thoughts and emotions uh, in the mind itself. The third foundation of mindfulness is, is, is uh, on citta, on mind, becoming aware of mental states, whether they're, 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 they're full of greed or hatred, whether they're bright or dark, and so forth and so on, to be much more carefully attuned to what's coming up in your mind at any given moment. And the closer you can get to the beginnings or the origins of these thoughts and emotions, the greater chance you have of being able to let them go. Once they build up a charge, usually because we haven't noticed that they're coming, then once they are noticed, it's often too late to do much about it. We're caught up and swept away by a fantasy or by a strong desire or fear or whatever it is, and off we go. So the metaphor of the city also is a metaphor that enables us to understand the role of mindfulness. It also points very clearly to how mindfulness is exercising a moral or ethical judgment. In other words, the mindfulness at the gateway of the, of the senses is welcoming in what is to be cultivated, to be developed. In other words, if we find ourselves responding to a situation with spontaneous love or kindness or generosity or wisdom, then that, of course, is welcome. That is to be invited in. Um, but if we find ourselves responding to the situation with, with uh, aversion or disgust or with uh, craving or with pride, then that is to be let go of. So the practice of the four tasks um, is exercised by the gatekeeper called mindfulness. Mindfulness is that which recognizes, let's say, a negative, destructive emotion, and it just lets it arise and pass away. It sees it and lets it go. But mindfulness also recognizes positive, uh, life-affirming emotions like love and generosity, and they are to be welcomed, they are to be brought in. So in other words, in every moment, we are, as it were, on the cusp between letting go and cultivating, which are, of course, the second and the fourth tasks. And that task is, uh, the, the task of making that judgment is grounded in the non-reactive space of nirvana itself. So... Not only does the city metaphor shed light on the, maybe the more societal project that the Buddha may have envisioned, it also sheds light on something as intimate and close to us as mindfulness and awareness itself. Uh, that, that too is incorporated into this same metaphorical frame. So that's where I'll stop today. Um, we have a little bit of time. If there's any questions, I'll take two or three, but then I'm going to go. Yes.
<laughs> Where do you go to do that? So the question uh, has to do with engagement, and could I say more about that in practical terms? In other words, what do I actually go out and do? Well, this is not something that um, I can tell you. I, I can't tell you what to do. You've got to figure that out for yourself. But I think the important point is to reflect on your understanding of what you mean by practice. And just imagine, for example, if somebody says, what's your practice? Chances are, would probably first of all think of some meditative exercise. I practice Vipassana or I practice Zen or whatever. Particularly if that question is asked in a context like this. But even outside this context, I've noticed how readily Buddhists uh, utilize the word practice to refer to a specific spiritual exercise that they are committed to. And that, I think, is, illustrates part of the problem. Because practice is already thought of as some kind of introspective, private exercise. We need to expend the, extend the notion of practice to encompass um, not only our meditation, but also our work, our speech, our actions, our imagination, all of these are practices. And that's exactly what the Buddha said. The, the Eightfold Path, he said, is to be practiced. The word he uses is bhavana, which literally means brought into being, created. Uh, yeah, created. Um, and what has to be practiced or brought into being are all of the aspects of the path, not just mindfulness and concentration or right view. So I think the Buddhism has somehow been weighted by the emphases that um, would be understandable within a monastic community. Monks are particularly good at meditation, philosophy, somewhat cerebral, introspective activities, and those activities have thereby become normative, and they've come to describe what we mean by practice. By bringing in the notion of engagement, we're effectively saying, no, this is only one small part of the practice. It's a very important part of the practice. One might even say that it's the core or the heart of the practice. But without the um, embodiment of this practice within acts of speech, acts of body, acts of imagination, the work we do, it becomes kind of impotent. Uh, if you think of a wheel, you have the hub of the wheel and you have the spokes and you have the rim and the tire. And the hub of the wheel is the central point of the wheel. Meditation is the central point of the Dharma practice. But if the hub of the wheel is isolated from the, from the spokes and the rim and the tire, it's useless. The hub of a wheel by itself has no utility. So likewise, if meditation is somehow privileged and to some extent set apart, put in a monastery, let's say, then it loses connection with the rest of the path of which 
it should be an integral component, not the, the, the best thing and the rest is secondary. And I think the image of a wheel is a good one because that's what the Buddha used also, the Dharma Chakra, the Dharma wheel. So the real challenge, I think, for many people who've come to the Dharma through mindfulness or meditation, whether it's secular or religious, doesn't really matter, is to really question more deeply what we mean by practice and can I, in all sincerity, find my work to be just as much a practice of the Dharma as my sitting on a cushion on retreat. That is what I would be, for myself, aiming for. And of course, each of us will have our own passions, our own um, you know, deeply held values. In identifying those, we then, I think, need to find means whereby to realize them in the world. And how that occurs will be up to each person or each community to find what um, is best suited to their needs and to their skills. So whatever you do in that regard is your engagement. Um, is your engagement with, with uh, those who are close to you, to the wider culture, to your work, colleagues. This is the kind of city of nirvana, uh, this rebuilding of an ancient city. That's the kind of vision that I think was there at the outset, although I think it subsequently got lost a bit and became a monastic religion. If we can recover that, I think we are um, you know, on the way to realizing uh, the implications of the Dharma in a thoroughly secular situation, such as the one we live in. I think that's a good point to end. Thank you.